Welcome to OT Uncorked, where we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy with a bottle of wine. I'm the host, Miranda Donnelly. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Lindsay Vestal, an OT entrepreneur who is going to share with us about her journey to becoming a successful practice owner and coach for other entrepreneurs. We're talking about mindset, building a business, competing on price, and serving clients where they are with amazing examples and wisdom from Lindsay's experience as a pelvic health therapist and private practice owner. Whether you're interested in starting your own practice, already have a practice, or want to learn more about being an OT in an emerging practice area like pelvic health, this episode is full of useful wisdom and advice. Miranda, this is such, I'm like fangirling big time right now. I'm so honored to be joining you. So a little bit about me is I am a pelvic floor specialist, specifically working with the pre and postnatal community. And I own a private practice in New York City. And I am also a occupational therapist here in Paris, where I'm currently living. And I have had just such an incredible calling to the pelvic health specialty. And I think that occupational therapy provides such an incredibly unique, robust lens for the pelvic health specialty. So I am a huge advocate for POTs being in a very previously uh, heavily dominated by physical therapist specialty. And I'm so incredibly passionate about it. I actually train other OTs on uh, how to get into pelvic floor therapy. So I have an online course that I've been offering since 2018 about this topic. And I also am about to launch a new course called Private Pay MBA, which is all about OTs. You don't have to be in pelvic health, any OT, uh, any OT specialty is welcome. And it's all about how to start your own private practice because I am also very passionate about OTs and their role in entrepreneurship. That course title is wonderful. I hear so (laughs) much in the OT entrepreneur space that one of the common fears about getting started is this feeling that we don't have formal business education, you know, that we don't have the MBA after our name. And so that's wonderful that you're providing very practical um, training for therapists in the entrepreneur space. So that's, that's really exciting. I'll have to keep an eye out for that. Thank you. I'm incredibly thrilled to be offering it. Well, there's so much I'd like to jump into about your OT story journey and what you're doing now. Before we do that, of course, since the show is OT Uncorked, could you tell me about what you're drinking today? Yes. So I was anticipating this question as I have listened to a ton (laughs) of your episodes. And so I came prepared, especially because I am living in Paris right now. So it is evening here. So I am not at all embarrassed to say that I've got a glass of red wine next to me. And what's really interesting about wine here in Europe is that it is not named by the grape variety, but it's named by the region. So there are about 20 or so regions that have their own style of grapes. And the one that I'm drinking now, um, I picked up actually when we were traveling to an area in Bordeaux, and I'm, I'm going to totally butcher this name because I, I cannot speak French. My children do beautifully, but I do not. And um, it, the, the town is called, in my butchered French, Saint-Emilion. 
And it's this gorgeous little like, you know, Romanesque uh, village with narrow cobbled streets. And it's just so beautiful. And it's, it's famous for the region is known for like Merlot Cab Franc blends, Mm. because of its very like rich soil with a lot of clay and chalk. So this particular bottle, let me lift it up here. It's called Chateau Musée Chevalier Saint Emilion, and it's red. And I picked it up for seven euros. Amazing all around, Lindsay. You are appealing to my wine geek brain. <laughs> <laughs> I love the description of the region. Oh, I just, I just love that sort of thing. And you're making me very jealous as I sit here in my quote recording studio, which is a closet in my Los Angeles. Uh, based or Long Beach based house um, while it's raining. So you're making me a little jealous because what you just described sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we were here in person, I would certainly be cheering, um, cheering you right now. We would be hitting glasses and um, toasting OTs. I will very much take a rain check on that. Okay, done. (laughs) (laughs) I will find my my way to Paris soon. (laughs) Fantastic. So when you were talking about your experience with OT and pelvic health. I can just hear your passion and your excitement. And I would love to know more about where that came from because pelvic health is something that maybe we talk about briefly in OT school, but it's certainly not a focus of our training. So what introduced you to pelvic health and, and where did this passion come from for you? Yeah, yeah. This is, this is a great question because it's a, it's a bit of a, um, interesting story and unexpected, I think. So basically my, I was, um, my first degree is in English. So I was a technical writer. So I really enjoy making complicated topics, breaking them down and making them really easy to understand. Mm. And I think that comes out with my OT background, given that I love education. I love empowering clients with understanding their options and understanding their body. So that was my initial background. And while I was practicing with my technical writing degree, I unfortunately uh, helped my father through bladder uh, bladder cancer. He ended up getting mm. prostate cancer later. But um, so at this point in time, he had bladder cancer and Years before, I had successfully helped him rehab a knee replacement. Okay, so so that went great. Here he is now with um, you know bladder cancer, and I'm thinking, wait a second, there's muscles down there. Why can't we help Dad rehab this part of the body? because his symptoms were really isolating. He went from being this really over, you know, over gregarious, very extroverted member of his community to really withdrawing out of fear for urinary frequency and urinary incontinence, which is loss of urine when you're not expecting it to happen. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I did research, found out there were indeed muscles down there. Um, there's actually 16 and there's three layers, both male and Mm -hmm. female. So I ended up finding a pelvic floor physical therapist for my father and it was Miranda incredible. I mean, I literally got my dad back. He got his life back. Um, and it was just an amazing experience. And so at that point in time, I was also a modern dancer and choreographer and yoga instructor. And I was thinking, okay, wait a second. Like I, I want to, I know this isn't going to be my career for the rest of my life. So I wanted to do something with the body, with, with empowering underserved populations, And so I, after this experience was like, this is it, this is my calling. Mm -hmm. 
So it was the choice between PT and OT school. And of course I, I, well, let me back up. I only knew about PTs. I actually knew nothing about OTs. And so the classic story, right? Choosing between (laughs) OT and PT and only really knowing what PTs do. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't, it's not a must, you know, you don't drive by an average street mall and see a marquee that says, you know, occupational therapy. You always see physical therapy. So it just wasn't something I was familiar with. So I was doing my volunteer hours um, at a rehab center. And one particular day, the PT that I was shadowing called in sick. So the director was like, hey, it's great to understand cross disciplines. It's great for you to kind of get to know your team. I'm going to I'm going to pair you up with an OT today. And I was like, what's OT? Sure, that's fine. Well, this particular day, the OT was doing memory work. So it was a client who had had a stroke and we literally just worked on her memory the entire session. And that's when a light bulb went off for me. I was thinking, wait a second. So I can obviously do physical rehabilitation. I've been, been, you know, I've, I've seen that as well. And I can also work with a client's mind. And that's when I was like, this feels a lot more holistic and complete to me. Uh, Lo and behold, years later, when I got into NYU and learned about the biopsychosocial model, I was just in heaven. I was like, and I already knew, remember, I already knew I wanted to do pelvic health. So to know that I was going into work with a part of the body that was so sacred, that was so taboo, that was so misunderstood, I knew that a physical lens to to, um, help heal this part of the body wasn't going to cut it. You know, I knew I needed those additional tools. So the moment I discovered that, I basically withdrew my application to PT school and I started filling out as many OT applications that I could. <laughs> the rest is history. Wow. Oh, what a journey. And and it sounds like your experiences from being a writer and then your person professionally, you know, and then personally your experiences with your father and your family kind of journeying through that. And then as a dancer and a yoga instructor, it sounds like all of that has just sort of informed the way you approach therapy now. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned we don't learn a lot about the pelvic floor in OT school. And I just want to let you know that, you know, over a decade ago when I was going through OT school, that was even more the case. In fact, um, I actually didn't have a whole lot of support from the university. Well, one 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 uh, one particular professor comes to mind that she didn't really believe that OTs belonged in this world, and um, it was so funny because the month that I was preparing to do an emerging practice area. Um, presentation that same month and OT practice, the title article was about our role with incontinence. And I just like, I walked in, I got my mail. I, I like think partied the entire evening, then walked into class the next morning and like literally threw the the journal on her desk. And I was like, voila, we can do this. So it was, it was really funny. But then I had other professors who really supported me and actually introduced me to, to other professors that were in the world. So it was a mixed experience, but by and large, you know, I mentor a lot of OTs in addition to offering the online training that I do. And I, I firmly believe, Miranda, that the tides are changing. I'm hearing less and less stories about people questioning our role. And that just elates me. Then you can really focus your energy on the clients and on, you know, if people are coming to you because they know that this is a role that OTs can be in, you know, then you can actually just focus on really what matters and actually serving the client as opposed to justifying 
why you do what you do, which I think is huge in any emerging practice area. It really opens up, you know, your own mental and uh, space and your own time to really focus on, on kind of what matters and what got you into this in the first place. You're exactly right. I I couldn't have said that better myself. I I am curious. You mentioned this idea that you had helped your father through a knee injury and you kind of start to think, well, there's muscles in the pelvic area as well. So how is this so different? How is this being treated so differently or not being treated at all? And I'm curious from your experience now in this field, what do you see as the reasons why pelvic health health was taboo for so long and continues to be in some ways? I think so much of it has to do with the fact that it's a part of the body that is is no, it is not your dinner party conversation. Mm-hmm. So, so much of the symptoms you experience when you have pelvic health injuries tends to be things that we're very ashamed of speaking about, right? So the three main jobs of the pelvic floor are elimination. So that's getting it out when it's the opportune time, but keeping it in when it's not. It's intimacy, so participating in an intimacy and being able to achieve orgasm and pleasure. Mm -hmm. And lastly, it's protection, organ protection. It's part of our inner core. So not only does it help keep our pelvic organs inside, but it contributes to the overall stability and security of, of our body, right? So, you know, it's things that all happen behind closed doors. All of those things happen behind closed doors. So when we don't have an opportunity to talk about them, we never know how they function optimally. So an example of this would be, you know, it's, it's really optimal to urinate once every two to four hours. And so because we don't ever talk about that, I mean, that's an extremely, I don't even know if you would think of generating a question like that. Like what's the optimal, I just kind of go when I have the urge. Right. Right. But the thing is like we specialize in pre and postnatal people. So a lot of our new parents will say, you know, I didn't remember that I only used to go every two or three hours, but now I'm going every 30 minutes. And I, I feel the need like this, this is, this is real. Um, and so we talk about actually it's, it's, it's a behavioral modification that we can make. And that's really just optimal to go once every two to four hours. And they're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like there was a time I did that. I've kind of forgotten that the haze of this role transition of becoming a mother, but okay, like let's, let's work on this. So we're doing so much education around things that people aren't even sure that there is an optimal way to approach it. Right. And I I could go through all three of those main categories and give you examples of that. Um, because again, it's, it's topics that happen behind closed doors. So I know you work with both men and women, you work with anyone, but I am noticing kind of what you're talking about with pelvic health sort of this lack of awareness of what's quote normal or what's healthy. And I feel that I notice a lot of that in women's health in general. Um, I just noticed like talking with other women, I think that thankfully when you have a good tribe of women, you know, around you, you can kind of talk about some of these more personal things, but it it strikes me that there's so much it's unknown and we have to consult Dr. Google on so many things to figure out is that normal? Is that expected? And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts uh, just from being immersed in this field on how we can be more educated as a general public, as non-specialists in this area, or how we can educate others as well on, on kind of what is expected and at what point should you seek help? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful question. I, I, you know, when I started my private practice almost eight years ago in New York City, one of the very first things I developed was a public health checklist. And it basically broke up the main functions we just talked about in, in a little bit more of a layperson conversation. And it, it was a checklist that you kind of went through. And that way you kind of had a baseline. Sometimes you don't even know what questions to ask. So how do you know how to figure out if you're doing it right? So give, by giving someone a checklist, I thought it was a really nice way to open that conversation to kind of have them check their own habits and routines and to say, okay, wait a second, I have a question about this one. What do you mean it's it's not normal for sex to be painful after you had a baby? You know, uh, what do you mean I'm not supposed to use effort to get urine out? Every single time I sit down, I have to strain a little bit, right? So it gets the conversation going. Otherwise, how the heck do you even know where to start? So I think a checklist is awesome. I provided it to a lot of pre and po- uh, postnatal fitness professionals. I provided that checklist to yoga studios, Pilates studios, and some teachers would hand it out. Others would just kind of keep it at like the check-in desk. And little things like this start to normalize the conversation and starts to give us vocabulary so we can begin to know how we can talk about it. And then to go, well, wait a second, is there something I can do about this? And where could I go? And that sort of introduces our profession a little bit and in, in, in sort of how our role can, can intersect. So a, a checklist is a great is a great way. I think also if any of your listeners have symptoms, talking about it more openly. So let's get out from this, you know, shroud of secrecy and stop accepting that just because we had a baby or just because we turned 60 or just because, you know, we um, had a, had an injury, like that any of these things are are normal. They are normal, but they're not optimal. And I think when we don't talk about them, we become even more afraid and shamed and thinking there's nothing we can do. And maybe our body failed us. We did something wrong, you know, and, and none of those things are true. So um, I think I would urge anyone who has any experiences, number one, to seek out a pelvic floor OT in their area. And then second of all, if they have that experience to talk about it, because it might help someone who's more shy or less inclined to seek out resources to actually realize that there's options out there. That's great advice. I'm really struck by that pelvic health checklist. And I know I want to talk with you in a little bit about some of those other resources that you provide freely and openly um, to folks who are maybe considering being a client or maybe don't even realize they have a need until they complete that checklist. But I'd also like to get an understanding of kind of what someone might expect from a pelvic health therapist or more specifically what they can expect from working with you or one of your employees. So um, kind of what kind of services does the functional pelvis provide? Mm -hmm. So as I said, we specialize in pre and postnatal people. And in New York City, we offer a concierge home-based service. So we come to our clients' homes and our initial evaluation is 90 minutes and our treatments are 60 minutes. And we are in touch with our clients between sessions. We have a, um, an app where all of their individualized exercises are accessible. Um, and we really pride ourselves on being offering the most superb care that you can. We'll get, we'll get into to competing on price and some of those other topics in a moment. But um, you know, I really think that if you offer the best service that you can, 
word of mouth is going to generate. And my practice is an exact example of that. New York City is a very competitive market of which, you know, two or three, at least, uh, pioneers in this field that were all PTs had private practices, had brick and mortars. And despite all that, and we're around for much longer than I've been. And, you know, here I come in an OT, the first OT to open up a private practice in New York city. And, you know, already I differentiated myself by offering in-home care. It started to set the example of how I was really willing to meet the client where they were both phys- physically and emotionally, you know, just by already putting them at ease by reducing transportation, reducing the fact that maybe they had an, another child and they had to not worry about childcare for that child. Um, you know, maybe they were a new nursing mom or bottle feeding mom. And that was a really stressful thing to, to worry about bringing all of the accessories with them. You know, I could go, I can go on and on, but it already started to send the message that my services were going to be really tailored and specific to their needs. I don't hear too many people providing that kind of service. I mean, I know there's therapists that do go into the home, particularly in pediatrics and and, in much older adults, but I think you're right. That idea of I'm coming to you and all of what you have going on at home is fine. It's part of who you are. And let's, let's address all of your concerns, you know, not in some sort of remote office space that yeah. you then have to translate what you've learned back to your home environment, but that you're just there, you're comfortable. Exactly. And as you mentioned, this is such a, you know, uh, you know, you're talking about sort of sacred things and yeah. personal things. And so to be in their space, I'm sure kind of gives them a little bit more confidence and comfort to speak up and really yeah. share what's going on. You really hit the nail on the head there, Miranda. I mean, I remember one of the first jobs I ever got and, you know, I'm, I'm feel so blessed. They were able to, to hire me on as an OT and when other people weren't willing to do so, but the director of the facility specifically, it was a policy children weren't allowed in the treatment room. And already I had, you know, had my eye on specializing with pre and postnatal people. And I, I, I felt so at conflict with that because like, I, I just didn't understand why we wouldn't take into account the whole person and why we would actually make an obstacle for them to come to therapy. So you're right. Contrasting just like that model with like how much further I took that, um, probably really informed that decision to kind of start that, that's, that sort of, um, you know, tailored, tailored care. So when you're talking about this job you had prior to opening the functional pelvis, was that a job in which you were also practicing in the area of pelvic health or did you have to kind of transition into that that separately so I guess kind of before you founded your company what did your career look like in OT yeah yeah so I always knew I wanted to be in pelvic floor therapy but I also knew that was going to be hard I mean if already I had a professor that didn't believe in us I kind of had a sense you know remember I was I was a slightly older student I was I wasn't fresh out of undergrad I had worked for a number of years as a technical writer and I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall you know I thought gosh this is this is going to be this might be tricky so I actually continued to volunteer at pelvic floor centers but my first couple my first year or so I worked as a generalist in a hospital setting and that was hard for me because my heart wasn't completely in it but because I was able to adjunct it with the evening work of working in a pelvic floor facility or volunteering I should say um, I I knew that the you know I was still gaining momentum in my dream and I wanted to really understand OT in a non-niche way first 
um, that my curriculum at school wasn't able to completely, you know, expose me to. So I did that. And I'm really glad I did because, I mean, one of the things that I remember listening to a, um, a lesson in, in graduate school was one of my professors who I really admired shared with us how many times she reinvented herself throughout her 50 year long career, you know, and it was so diverse and so vast. And I thought, you know what, I know my heart's in pelvic health and I know this is something I'm going to do, but I'm also, this isn't my first time around the block. And I wanted that optionality. I wanted that ability to be someone who can reinvent myself. And I sort of have in the sense that now I'm very much solely focused on supporting other OTs in an education capacity, but still involved in pelvic health. But my point in saying that is, is I wanted that optionality. So for me, I started off in a hospital, continued to be exposed to pelvic health, and then got my first job uh, at the same hospital, but at a different location in an in, in outpatient setting where they provide pelvic health. And, and that was that director that I mentioned who, you know, wasn't, wasn't too keen on allowing children in the treatment rooms. But I remember in my interview talking about how much the OTs, you know, had this biopsychosocial approach and it really interested the hiring manager who wasn't the director. It, she was my mentor and she was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With our clients, I can really <laughs> see how that would benefit, you know? And, um, so, so she set the wheels in motion and, you know, therefore I got my first job. Fast forward, um, I then ended up moving into this, into New York city proper. And I wasn't able to get any job interviews. There weren't any PTs who were even interested in talking to me, even though I had had experience in the field and had oh. been through many, many courses. And so that's why I started the functional pelvis. It was out of necessity because now that I had worked in the field and was even more strongly convinced of how much it was my calling and how much OTs needed to be in it, there was no one that was going to take that away from me. Mm. So I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. I never thought I would own my own private practice, but I, it was, it was a necessity for me to do so. And I'll tell you what it put into so into motion, so many wonderful things that I could have never expected. You know, I hadn't had children yet. And once I had children and my practice started to completely focus on pre and postnatal people, the amount of freedom that owning my own business enabled me so that I could be there for my family and to be the mother, you know, I wanted to be class parent, you know, I wanted to attend the two o'clock, you know, show um, for the end of the year celebration. And if I was at a hospital, there was no way any of those things were going to happen. I think that is one of the common things I hear from entrepreneurs in general, but particularly in the OT space that we want this evasive, whether it's real or not, occupational balance. I don't, I don't yeah. really buy into that, that that's real, but we, we want that balance. We want to be able to live our lives in work and out of work and be there, bring our best selves to all that we do. And entrepreneurship really does seem to provide that freedom, which I think is really appealing. And just, yeah, I think that's appealing to most OTs because we, we want to be engaging in meaningful occupations in all areas of life, right? That's kind of what we do. Absolutely. And here's the thing you said, you know, you're not sure if you believe in the balance and I agree with you, but the thing is you have the freedom as an entrepreneur to choose where to spend your time. And that wasn't something that was available to me before. So am I, am I going to kid you and say that it's less work? Absolutely not. It's, it's a lot more work to wear all of the hats that before I previously could just walk in and treat clients right now. I'm wearing all of the hats um, that I never anticipated I would 
but the thing is that the freedom that it provided me to re- to rearrange my day and my priorities where I see fit, the fact that I could actually design a treatment um, experience for the client that they truly deserved. And it wasn't a rushed 30 minute conversation where I barely got to talk about, let's say something as intimate as their bowel habits. And then I have to end the session because they finally opened up to me, but it's now been 23 minutes. All of that stuff is specifically for the pelvic health arena is, is it, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, so I was, it, it enabled me to design a treatment that I was proud of. Um, so I, I agree with you about the balance thing, but I did just want to, I did want to mention how, um, the work, despite it being more and more challenging in ways that I never anticipated, such as, I don't know, sales and marketing, um, it's still, I look back and it literally, I was, I was forced into the best decision of my life by having to start this business. I love what you said at the, towards the beginning of that about choice and that it might not provide more balance, but if it provides more choice. So I think you've just changed my vocab around occupational balance to maybe occupational choice. <laughs> I love that. On that a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> so you've talked about this necessity that, that you, you had this calling, you needed to start this business. At what point did you make the leap from working for someone else to fully working for yourself? And kind of what did that journey look like? That's a great question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot with the creation of my private pay MBA course. So I was not in a emotional, intellectual, or financial space to completely make the jump into owning my own private practice. Mm-hmm. So um, I started a side hustle. Uh, so in the beginning, I worked four days a week for a home care service in New York City. And I had some of the most interesting clients because all of my my ch- my stomping grounds were below Union Square. So I had like the Greenwich Village area. And I just I had some really interesting, interesting clients that certainly kept me intellectually challenged. So it was actually a, it was it was a great experience. And I held one day open to start my business. So all of the groundwork, the creation of the business entity, um, you know, making inroads in the community so I could build referral networks, you know, you name it, buying the equipment, branding, all of those things. And eventually, you know, a few months into it, I picked up a second day of, of just working on my business. Third day, then a couple months down the road, you, you get the point. I eventually got to the point where when I was working, when I only was working two days for the home healthcare agency is when I said, I'm ready to do this. I'm feeling momentum energetically. This is just where I need to be. So I did it sidestep wise. I did it in a way that, that kind of catered to my pragmatic, you know, logical brain while dipping my toes in the water to make really sure that this was going to fly. And so it gave me that confidence to, to then, you know, flip the switch and make this my, my full-time occupation. Wow. You know, when I was interviewing uh, Laura Park Figueroa on a previous episode, we talked a little bit about how there's a different mindset with sort of having a side hustle and having a business, but it sounds Mm. like for you, you really had the end goal of, of having it as a business in mind, but logistically it made sense to kind of start it as a side hustle, kind of start it as a, a very part-time thing. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of your mindset and how that needed to shift, if at all, throughout kind of that journey from being full-time for someone else to full-time for yourself? Well, for me, because I, as you so eloquently said, I had the end in mind 
for me, it was, I was a hundred percent in whatever I was doing. So when I was doing my visits in Greenwich Village, I was a hundred percent with my clients. And then when I had those one or two or three days where I was focused on my business, I actually kind of didn't always know what to do. Um, but I knew I needed to make traction or the balance would have to shift, right? I'd have to then go back to the home care. So the incentive was real and it kind of kicked my butt to go, okay, like you, you just can't sit here and wait for the phone to ring. So all those sales and marketing things that initially felt very icky to me, I had a real uh, fire under my belly to figure them out because otherwise as much as I loved my clients, I knew that wasn't my calling. So being able to do that, it actually gave me the momentum to, to not just kind of, like I said, sit on my hands and wait for the phone to ring, even though I didn't want to do all those skill, um, tasks that enabled me to move my business forward. It was, they were hard. So that actually helped me. I would say the harder mind shift would happen when I started getting closer to those like three days a week and two days a week at the home care. And I was like, I, I'm, I can, I'm, the eye is on the prize. I can feel mm-hmm. this happening. And it was like, well, when do I pull the plug? When do I make this official? That was looking back. That was probably harder for me um, than not. And I will say all of those lessons and all of those, you know, motivational mindset issues that helped me all throughout are all things that I've really poured into the private pay MBA course, because my goal was to really create like a crystal clear roadmap for planning, building and growing a private pay practice that clients are really happily happy to pay upfront for. They're happy to this, to participate in this cash pace model. And because I lived and breathed those doubts and those worries and that imposter syndrome, I and successfully got on the other side of it. I wanted to help expedite that process for other OTs. And so, yeah, that's that's what I've what I've really poured into the course. That all sounds so helpful and there's such a need for that. Um, and there's so many OTs who are feeling really empowered and seeing that necessity and having that calling to start their own business. So these yeah. resources sound so timely. I, I'm curious, when you talk about that mind shift from when you were working two days a week in that home care setting, and you talked about this idea of sort of when do I make it official? When do I pull the plug? When do I just mm-hmm. dive five days a week or seven days a week <laughs> you know, into this business? Um, did you, I'm just curious, did you wait until you had positive cash flow to make that choice? Or did you just wait till you were very confident in the model and the marketing and all the groundwork you had laid? Yeah. No, unfortunately, I, I, I didn't wait till I was cash flow positive because that took time. That took time. So I, I think it really, for me, it was a, it was a myriad of things. And the first thing was, is when I energetically found it harder to show up to home care, I was just like, this, this, this was fine. This was good for the time that it served. And I'm so grateful I had it, but you know what? It's getting harder for me to do this. I find myself breathing, eating, dreaming, sleeping, you know, pelvic health. And so, and those weren't things that were coming up in my sessions. So, um, you know, I think energetically, I kind of listened to my intuition and when that was a big informant. And then I think the other thing was that I felt that I was running out of time to do the other things that I was doing to move the business forward. So three days was no longer enough to accomplish some of the tasks that I needed to do to really grow the business. I needed that extra fourth day. I needed that fifth day. And so that was the other thing that clearly told me 
that it was time. And I was, I believed in myself. I was getting enough, um, affirmation from people around me from, you know, when I had three clients in a month, wow, I felt like that was a million dollars. You know, I was like, this is awesome. And I just started seeing, I was started connecting dots between like that. Honestly, you only needed about five to seven solid referring parties, maybe even four to six Hmm. to really make a successful private practice. And I realized that those relationships weren't uh, built by just sending a flyer. I needed to go and and meet them, show up to workshops they were offering, right? I needed to really go deep with these practitioners to not only demonstrate the type of therapist I was, but to also kind of get to know their practice because I wanted to refer to them, right? I wanted to get to know the acupuncturist and you know, the childbirth educator and the doula. And so by being able to participate in that community, built those roads and built that know, like, and trust that everyone talks about, that's a real thing, especially in a private pay model. So I think those two things were kind of my green light um, to, to really fully launch myself into it. I also think that idea of not having the same energy and attention for the Mm -hmm. work that you are being paid for outside of your business. I think that's such a good sign. And when I talk to other OTs, whether, you know, through OT Uncorked or just my friends from OT school, and I hear the passion kind of dying out in that particular practice area, and I can feel a lot like burnout. Sometimes the setting is you know, there's other features of the setting that are causing that burnout. And, and sometimes it's just the passion isn't there. And I just always want to tell them, get out, (laughs) do something different with an OT. We have such a beautiful, diverse profession. And there's so many opportunities as you've, you mentioned before to kind of reinvent yourself even within our profession. And so I think that is such a good sign. And I would love just listeners and myself to kind of key into that. You know, at what point are you, are we feeling that we can't bring the same energy and passion to the setting because when we are not fully present with our clients, we're just missing out on part of that therapeutic process, but it's so easy to do mm-hmm. <laughs> when we're not feeling yeah. passion anymore. Well, and it's the, the clients missing out and we're missing out because I don't know about you, but you know, I didn't, I didn't go to OT school because I was good at filling out paperwork. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I know I have that writing background, but I, I, I really didn't think that that was a, that was a strength of mine and that wasn't the calling. So when you start to focus on that other stuff, whether it's because your environment, your boss, you name it, is really, really, you know, uh, pushing productivity. Um, you're feeling burnt out because the material isn't interesting anymore. Those, to me, are all the callings, as you said, that not only is the is the client not getting therapeutic balance that they so deserve, but we're not getting that fulfillment either, right? I mean, we all, we all. We all got into this because, you know, we believe as OTs and our clients are at their best when they're free to do the work that they love. And so we're free to do the work we love when we're in a model that supports that, either because it's our own business or it's because we've transitioned from originally we really, really interested in working with, you know, burn victims to now let's transition to, I don't know, acute rehab, right? I mean, I mentioned that that professor of mine who switched uh, focuses and specialties numerous times throughout her career. And we have the ability to do that. We have the ability to do that. So I strongly encourage and support everything you just said. And anyone listening to this, if they have an inclination or a nudge to 
get out of the environment they're in, whether it's to start their own business or try a different specialty, do it, do it, do it. So well said. I'm just nodding here. Everything you're saying is such great wisdom. And I think we all need to hear that repeatedly just to be our best selves and to bring our best to, to our clients and to enjoy our jobs because yeah. believe it or not, that's part of it too. <laughs> yeah, life's, life's too short to not enjoy our jobs. Seriously. Oh, I mean, yeah. the amount, the percentage that we're at work, come on, mm-hmm. it, 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 it right. needs to be a joy. You've mentioned a couple challenges you faced when opening your business, and some of them that struck me were, one, you just kind of briefly mentioned it when you were talking about that transition from taking a one day towards your business, then two, and three, and then five. You mentioned one thing that sometimes you were at home and you didn't quite know what to do. You know you needed that time for your business, and you weren't quite sure what to do with it, and that is very uncomfortable. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that challenge, especially towards the beginning when you knew you needed to spend the time on it, but weren't quite sure what the best use of that time was. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I think having a community of like-minded professionals, friends could really be an advantage because I didn't have that. And I think that I, we could have kept each other motivated. We could have like cried when we needed to cry. We could have built each other up. Right. So, so these are the kind of things that I think, you know, I, I see mentorship, group mentorship, as well as just like colleagues, you know, there's a bunch of OT pioneers. So OT pioneers is the the name of the online course that um, helps OTs transition into public floor therapy. And, you know, I have a quite a few students from that course who have, you know, kind of jumped off of the platform. Um, we have a private Facebook group and started their own WhatsApp chats or Voxer chats where, you know, they're ones in Alaska, ones in California, you know, ones in Tennessee. And it doesn't matter because they just leave messages when they need to. Right. And so it's this like free, beautiful, reciprocal community they've created where they're all kind of within the same, the same part of their career and they really lean on each other for support. Um, and that's, to me, that's a really, a really beautiful thing. So I would, I would, I would have said that would have been something I could have really used. Um, instead I just probably spun my wheels in a lot of really unproductive directions. A very quick example of that would be the first year I really thought that I needed to meet every doctor that potentially could refer to me. So that could be a urogynecologist, a gynecologist, a colorectal doc, an OBGYN, um, you know, you name it. And, And anyone that I thought would slightly overlap with my field, I needed to meet them. And That was, that was a crazy year of me spending a lot of money on lunches that I supposedly had to provide um, and just a lot of wasted time. I remember one time I I did, I met with someone on the Upper East Side. It was a really prominent Euro, no, OBGYN who had been in practice for over 40 years. And I was lucky to get in with him. I had about 10 minutes of his time. I didn't have to provide lunch, which I was like really thrilled about. Yeah. <laughs> and so ridiculous when I think about that now. Um, and, you know, he gave me 10 minutes of his time and I gave him my little spiel about what I do and why I care about what I do. And he just looked at me and he said, I have never heard of this profession before. And I was simultaneously freaked out for all of the clients that he gave, helped give birth to like also feeling really excited. Like this was my chance. I was going to change, change the trajectory of things. I was going to really help them understand. 
Right. Well, you know, <laughs> I don't think I ever got a phone call from this gentleman, but <laughs> my point is, is that, you know, you do sort of that doctor roadshow. And for me personally, it didn't amount to much. And the okay. second year I started offering community workshops where I went directly to the public and, you know, basically for, for a very, very affordable fee, cause I didn't want price to be a barrier. I educated them on the pelvic floor. The course was called, their workshop was called ABCs for the pelvic floor and core. And, you know, it was a 90 minute workshop at a um, same location at a predictable time every single month. So as I started meeting more referring practitioners that most likely weren't doctors, I would tell them, oh, I'm over, I'm over at the YMCA on the third Thursday of every month. If you have any client who's interested in learning more, send them over, right? And this is when I really started to see things grow. So by the third year, mm. I got, I was a hundred percent word of mouth. And now those doctors that I initially met with knew about me because mm. their clients were talking about the experience they had with me. And now they started sending me people. So that's kind of an example of, you know, it took three years. I spun a lot of wheels. I made a lot of mistakes. Maybe they weren't mistakes. Who knows? They were learning opportunities, but that's kind of just a, a, a what story came to mind when you asked me the question around sort of like, you know, what, what did I do at that time that I wasn't sure what to do with? That is great advice. I do think it's, again, I don't have my own business, but I am friends with a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in sort of the healthcare and more specifically OT space. And I think that marketing is so challenging and everyone feels like they have to kind of reinvent the wheel with marketing. Yeah. Now I think there's so many of the resources out there and you're providing some as well. So I think that'll be really useful. And this example though of just feeling like you need to connect with everyone. Oh yeah. my goodness. I'm guilty of that in like every area of my life. It's like, so oh, yeah. well, the more people, you know, or the more connections you make and it's, it's a, more about investment, I think in, in a few really good. That's exactly um, right. People. Or, or like you said, you know, reaching out to the community and kind of letting people in a way sort of self-refer. And um, when people have a need and it's not fulfilled, I think there's a drive there that just doesn't necessarily exist from a referring practitioner's point of view. But that's just my perception. Again, I don't have my own practice. So that's just sort of what I'm perceiving from other people's experiences. You are, I mean, you, you said that like you're a private practice owner, you're, you hit the nail on the head there, you know, and I go back to how I felt when I was speaking at that OBGYN about, oh my gosh, this is my chance. I'm going to teach them all about pelvic floor therapy. And that really lit me up, right? That really excited me because I, again, I, at my heart, I love education. And so I took that energy that wasn't productive with those particular practitioners and I brought it to the people that did motivate. And that was the community, right? I got that, I got that fire. I got that satisfaction. I was able to talk and educate and share and empower. And then, you know, what resulted from that was the phone actually rang, right? So like what a winning combination. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, how cool. Another challenge you had mentioned previously in our conversation was this idea that you were coming into a market that already had a handful of pelvic health services and specialists, mm -hmm. particularly physical therapists. So how did that dynamic and that kind of knowledge play into your plan and, and how you were reaching out to the community and how you were establishing yourself? So initially I felt really 
um, closely connected to the fact that I needed to wear my OT credentials on my sleeve. You know, like if, if I could have had an OT button, you know, like I would have been that dorky person who would show up to meetings being like, I am an OT. You know, I, I felt no, I like think we used to original, original OTs, I think had a patch on their uniform on the, on the sleeve. Maybe we need to bring that back. That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I'm going to see if I can find a picture and post that. <laughs> well, I used to be a Girl Scout. So that totally resonates with me. I would oh, yeah. wear that in a heartbeat. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. So, um, you know, I felt like it was such a distinguishing factor and I knew that's why I got to pelvic health, right? It was because of that OT framework. So I was like, I want everyone to know how I'm so different. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it just made things more confusing. People just didn't understand why I was bringing it up. Why did it matter? Were they able to get reimbursed because they were able to get reimbursed from a PT? So what is this Mm -hmm. new profession they've never heard of? And could they get, like, it opened up all of these questions that, that took away and distracted from what really mattered, which was how I was going to get them better, how I was going to help them understand themselves better, right? How I was going to help them on their healing journey. So I, I started to pivot when I felt that happening and I just started letting my work speak for itself and, you know, had, had a couple, you know, 30 second, 60 second elevator speech things where I would talk about my holistic framework and things like that. But I did, I started bringing up my credentials and I, I really mm-hmm. felt like that was a pivot point. I struggled with that because I felt like I was abandoning the OT a little bit in me. And then I very quickly realized I wasn't that I actually It was serving our profession better. Um, You know, how many people said to me, oh, do you, do you help people get back to work? Right. It's like, come on, like, you know, we, we know all those, everybody listening on this call has had that experience. So I think that was, that was an important thing. Um, And then the other thing, and uh, you didn't quite ask this Miranda, so I hope it's okay that I go on this segue a little bit is that, you know, people, people often ask me, like, how did you figure out your prices? You know, like if, if there was other really prestigious, um, very well-respected colleagues that were PTs in your area that were offering these services, like, how did you know how to, how to set your prices and how did you feel confident when doing that? And my feeling on this is really strong. Um, you know, my first thought was I'm going to call my competitor. So I'm going to say, what do you charge? You know, and, and what do I, what, what, how long is a service? Right. I wanted to kind of benchmark it for the geographical region I was in. And I very quickly realized that competing on price was a race to the bottom, you Hmm. know, that, that pegging rates on my competitors or on Medicare or you name it, something external, will only encourage others, including myself over time to lower our prices to compete with each other. Hmm. And that's a downward spiral. That's a downward spiral. That's a, that's a spiral that no one wins from. So I'm going to, I'm going to be really geeky here and quote Warren Buffett because I love this quote. (laughs) (laughs) And it's basically price is what you get and sorry, price is what you pay and value is what you get. And so I stopped focusing so much on price and competition. And I just started focusing on honestly offering the best darn service that I could. Well, I appreciate your segue and your sort of offshoot into price because um, I think this is another very taboo topic. Oh my goodness, we're talking about pelvic health and prices. 
my goodness, it's crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this idea that it's a race to the bottom, I have not heard that before, but everything you're saying makes so much sense. Um, so I guess then once you realize that this wasn't going to work for you, this wasn't going to help your business if you're competing yeah. to be more affordable. And you, you mentioned just wanting to make your business better. So then I guess with that knowledge and that mindset, how did you actually put a price on that value? Yeah. So I, in my course, I have something called the dare to dream calculator, where you basically input in your expenses, your fixed expenses. And from there, you can kind of get to based on your needs, where your price would lie. So okay. it's kind of like a, a little, a little nugget. Um, I have, my husband is in statistics. He's a mathematician. So he helped me with this early on. Oh, I know it's not an area of, it's like not an area that I'm comfortable at all in. Um, And so he helped me with this and really start to look at this in this really simple way of like, okay, let's break down statistically how many referring parties you need. Like how many clients do you need to see a week? What would that mean your price point would be at, you know? And, and it ended up, believe it or not, it ended up coming in. I think I ended up being 25 to $50 more than my competition after mm-hmm. I did this dare to dream calculator. And I felt really comfortable with that because I was offering a preeminent service. I was going to their home. I was, as you said, looking at things like their baby feeding position, right? I was looking at how they were taking the dishes out of the sink. I was watching them push the stroller. I did a lot of like Brooklyn walk-ups. So I would see how they would carry all the equipment and their grocery bags up and down the stairs, right? We looked at function and this resonated with people because they got so sick of being in a gym doing a hundred clamshells or a hundred kegels or something else that was like so boring and so repetitive. And I told them, you know what, we're going to look at activities that you do a thousand times a day. And believe it or not, you can do it in a more optimal way that will actually strengthen your pelvic floor. And they were like all about that. You mean every single time I pick up my son's Legos, 50 little tiny Legos off the floor, I have an opportunity to help the fact that I'm peeing. Every time I pick up my baby, yeah, sign me up, right? Right. These are people that already had limited times and windows. So it's like, you know, and it worked, it worked. And so they would tell their neighbor and they would tell their sister. And I mean, before you know it, I was at a point where I could hire another OT because this again was, it was a preeminent service and people didn't mind paying for it. Right. Well, and people will pay for convenience, right? And it's not just convenience, but it sounds like from what you were, some of the examples you just gave, you're actually kind of relieving a burden instead of, as you previously mentioned, adding the burden of, okay, you need to figure out transportation and, you know, I don't live in New York and that whatever I have been there, traffic is horrible. So I can't imagine wanting to navigate that (laughs) to go somewhere for for even a 30, 60 minute appointment. So, um, so the idea that you were not just being convenient, but it actually enhanced the care you were able to provide and you Mm -hmm. relieved a burden. Um, another thing you mentioned too, was, you know, needing childcare if, if an office wouldn't accept, um, children to come along for the appointment. Um, my goodness, paying $25 to $50 more, yeah. that's still less than you'd be paying for a babysitter to watch your child while you go to an appointment. Exactly. So, okay, that's this is all very helpful. I will say that our our rates went up a lot higher after that um, because we really started to, to become in demand. So I think yeah. by the time we were all said and done, I mean, 
just to be completely transparent and feel free to edit this out, Miranda, if you don't want things to be this No, bold. thank you. I love transparency. This is so helpful. <laughs> yeah. So our initial evaluations um, are $450 for 90 minutes and our treatments are 350 And prior to the pandemic, we had weeks long wait list. Um, the pandemic has changed things, but, um, you know, just speaking to life the way it was for the majority of, of our business and when things were a little bit different, um, New York was really hard hit with the pandemic. Um, people were more than happy to pay those rates. I really do appreciate your transparency with that. I know that there's a lot that's talked about in entrepreneurship and then there's sort of this hesitancy to actually share numbers about anything. And so I think that's that's just so useful particularly for people who might be wanting to navigate this space or for people in a different area of practice, but who just don't feel necessarily the confidence to charge a rate that they really believe they're worth. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly. As we talk about price and um, competition, I wanted to transition because I notice on your website, and I'll link to this, of course, in the show notes, I noticed that you provide a lot of articles and free resources, free downloads. You've already mentioned some of them on this com- in this conversation, and I'd love to know how you have balanced providing free resources with paid services because I think this is a very delicate balance that I certainly don't know how to provide. I don't have experience with that. And I I just think we all kind of struggle with how much do we give away for free and how much do we save for paid clients? Any advice would be wonderful. <laughs> so Miranda, I I really come at this with a complete abundance mindset. Hmm. So I I don't I think there are more there's more work out there than than we can possibly handle. Um, and when we are secretive or feel like, you know, this is, this is, this is my top information. Like I'm only, I'm only going to wait for my, my paying client for this. We're really doing a disservice because when you sort of open your body and mind up to the fact that there is enough work for everybody, their generosity is felt. And Mm. here's the thing. I mean, um, I, I, you know, I, I've heard this quote before, forgive me, I don't remember who said it, but it's something to the effect of like, give away 99% and save the 1% for people that pay. Because if that 99% is that valuable and you, and it should be, by the way, let's not shortchange that. I mean, you need to give this your all. Um, They, someone will gladly pay for that 1% that's left out. And that's been a practice that I have done my entire career, not only with our clients in New York city, but to the OTs that I support with their um, forays into public health or private pay business. And I think that that transparency and that abundance mindset has provided amply for me. So to, to anyone who has that hesitation, even after, you know, briefly hearing my explanation on this or my perspective on this, you know, I would encourage you to take some time out and think a little bit more deeply around what your hesitancy is about. You know, is it, is it fear that maybe you feel like an imposter, right? And that you're not so confident about the work that you're putting out there. Is it that, you know, you're afraid that, that, you know, things aren't going to multiply back to you because you've given it all away. So who's going to pay for anything and sit and question a little bit where that's coming from, because I, th- I think it's a message that's, that's really prevalent and, and maybe not spoken, but we just kind of assume that, that we should keep these things really close to the chest. 
When in actuality, if you were to try, you know, whether it's through an Instagram post or a Facebook or a workshop, like give it a try, give it out there, talk about things that are really crucial and key to your model and see how you feel afterwards. And I personally felt really at ease and open and lovely about being able to not feel like you had to really, you know, only be a paying client to get this information. In fact, it got people even more interested because they saw how I was different. They saw this generosity of spirit and it was someone they wanted to align with. So I would question this idea that keeping things back will bring you more business question the root of that fear of why your particular mind is encouraging you not to share and then try to rewrite that narrative a little bit. Give it a try and and see if it does change dynamics for you. I'm just soaking that in. I love this abund- this idea of the abundance mindset, but it feels kind of scary to do that. You know, yeah. as you mentioned, I think it can feel scary. And so I love that you're reflecting on, you know, why would it feel that way? You've given so many great tidbits of wisdom and knowledge throughout this conversation, Um, a lot centered on entrepreneurship and kind of paving new ways and being a pioneer. And so I, I know you've already given us so much. What would be one major takeaway for an OT who wants to jump into entrepreneurship, but maybe in a practice area that is still developing with an, with an OT, an emerging practice area? I guess I would encourage them to try to segue in if they're cautious and if they're, you know, a little bit, a little bit unsure to try, try the side hustle thing, right? Try, try just offering workshops, right? Just develop like a solid 45 minute to 65 minute workshop, get it out there. Even if it's virtual, if it's in person in your community and just see the way the information is received, see how your body responds to delivering the information, right? Do you feel Hmm. more enthusiastic than you have felt about anything in the last three years of your career? To me, that's a, that's a pure sign. You got to move forward, right? If you kind of leave it going, Oh, okay. Like I, you know, kind of was thinking about that, uh, bottle of red from Bordeaux waiting for me at home. Um, instead well, wouldn't of, be, you know, you know? <laughs> <laughs> as I just took a sip, um, you, right. know, and, <laughs> you know, maybe that's telling you something too. So I, I think that, um, I feel like anyone who's got the calling, who's really isn't sure if they're ready first of all, there's never fire fireworks, right? There's never this moment where you're like, this is for me. And this is the way it needs to go. Like, I would say we all face those deep set it fears that we're not sure we're going to make this work. And I would say that that shouldn't be the stopping block. I do a lot of mindset work in my course to help people kind of get through that. In fact, people think they're going to be buying the course for the checklists and for the insurance information and the business entity information and the MBI number, they're really getting the mindset stuff, which is going to be all the difference in the world between approaching this with success or feeling constant doubt. So I guess I would say to um, try it and then trust yourself. More great wisdom. Thank you for that. (laughs) When will the private pay MBA course be available or is it already out there? I will be recruiting very soon for beta testers. 
So I've got a really stringent beta testing process because um, the type A in me wants the very best product out there that I can give. So I'm doing the beta testing things soon. And so my, my goal would be after, you know, I internalize and act on all of the amazing feedback that I get. Um, it, my goal is by fall 2021, if not sooner. Okay, wonderful. So we will keep an eye out for that. And when it does come out, we'll be sure to advertise it for anyone who is listening and eagerly awaiting uh, the opportunity oh, to enroll. Thank you, Miranda. <laughs> thank you. If there are listeners who are really interested in enrolling in this private pay MBA course and just can't wait till the fall and are really interested in possibly being part of the beta test, how can they get involved? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for asking that because I so welcome feedback and so find it incredibly lovely for anyone who's interested in providing that. It's so valuable. So they could just go to my website. We can we can throw the URL up there, Miranda, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And basically they can just sign up to the wait list of the course. And it's that list that I will use to ask people to um, become beta testers or if you're listening to this episode and it's past the beta testing cycle. It certainly is how you can find out when enrollment opens next. So let's, let's just, I would say just check out that website and um, yeah, you can, you can learn more. So as you know, at the end of every episode, I ask for a book recommendation, partially selfishly because I love Mm -hmm. reading. Also selfishly, I co-host the OT book club and we are always looking for great recommendations from our fellow OTs. So do you have anything for us today? Any book recommendations you think might be of interest to our listeners? I do. And I also have to say that at the time of this recording for the OT book club, you guys are reading The Body Keeps the Score. And I just want to say that's an incredible book. Um, So anyway, thank you for offering that OT book club because that's such an incredible resource. So the book that I'm reading right now is a book called Burnout. And the subtitle is Solve Your Stress Cycle. Now, this is really applicable for many reasons. Number one, it is written by the author Emily Nagoski, who has written a book called Come As You Are, which is a very important book in the pelvic health world because it's all about demystifying arousal. So I'm just going to throw a really quick uh, myth buster tip out there, which is um, most people who identify as women orgasm more than I think 80% of the time from clitoral stimulation, not through penetration. Mm. Um, Another interesting fact is that it takes up to 40 minutes for most females, people that identify as females to become aroused to the point where they can orgasm. And so these are things that sometimes people think there's something wrong with their body because they can't orgasm through penetration or it takes them so long to orgasm. And this book was really pivotal because it talks about the mind and the mind's ability to get in the way of arousal. And so it's a really pivotal work because it's just helped to how people understand potentially why desire wanes a little bit after having a baby or, you know, how we can get into our own way when really we went nothing more than to connect to our partner. So she's come out with this book, another very fascinating book, um, this time, not about anything with pelvic health, but about your stress cycle. And number one, I was immediately drawn to it because the clients that we serve, um, really become quite stressed out because on average it takes between seven and nine years 
for them to find us. They've gone to every other doctor in the world and they can't find out what's wrong with them because no one's looking at the muscles in their pelvis. So they're usually quite stressed. The nervous system has a huge role in pelvic health dysfunction. So I was first gravitated towards this because of my clients. The second reason I gravitated towards it was because of the fact that we're in a pandemic right now. And right now, just the nervous system is, is really, people aren't sure how to handle such a prolonged stress, Mm. right? It's not the, you know, shoe drops off a foot and we know what to do. It's, it's this stressor that's just sort of not going away. So from like a more of like a, a cultural, um, global perspective, I was really drawn to it. And then the third reason is because most of the students that I support in their endeavors to become an entrepreneur, Mm-hmm. have a lot of stress, right? It's a lot of self-reflection. It's a lot of confronting, you know, demons and imposter syndrome and all the things that could keep us from becoming our best self. And so I also wanted to look at it and examine this book um, while I'm working through the private pay MBA course. So good. Thank you for those descriptions. Those both sound um, really, really interesting. I am curious. So the the burnout um, solve your stress cycle book. That one sounds very relevant to people in all areas of practice, yeah. or maybe even non clinicians. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And then the Come as You Are book. You mentioned that's more specific to pelvic health. Would you say that's another book that's more sort of um, accessible to in sort of like the popular press world, or is that one more so targeted at clinicians? No, I would actually say, to be honest with you, I would say both are really targeted towards the layperson. So Emily Nagoski does an amazing job at, at uh, I admire it so much at really just making this stuff. I mean, she's a researcher at heart and you get that. But the thing is, um, like I'm actually looking at the book right now, there's a, at the very end of every chapter, she's got a TL semicolon DR semicolon, <laughs> okay. which and she explains what that is, right? Like in, in the book. And honestly, I didn't even know what it stood for um, until I read her. Read, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's like her synopsis, you know, it's like her, hey, like this is this is the, the core takeaways. And so it just shows you like her personality um, and how she is so approachable and wants to make this, even though you know she's like a total geek, um, you know <laughs> that she just like wants to get this information into everyone's hands. And I actually had the opportunity to hear her talk um, at uh, in New York City in a really small venue at um, Planned Parenthood. And she had that same persona. Um, she was mm. just so approachable. So actually, I, I even have my clients read the Come As You Are book, or she's got like a 10-minute TED Talk out there that sometimes I'll start clients with that. And if they come back and they're like, I was really interested in that. Like, where can I learn more? Then I tell them about her book. Mm. And, I'm, and I'm thinking that burnout's going to be in the same category. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to link to that TED Talk and watch it myself. Yeah, you should. It's really good. It's It's amazing. Well, Lindsay, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, We've talked about so much from pelvic health and the services you provide and what it was like for you to transition into the entrepreneur space and how you've continued to evolve your business through changing times and just all the many ways you support your clients and put them first. And um, I know that your story and your wisdom is going to be inspirational and also very practical for people moving forward. So I really appreciate you taking this time to talk with me and just share this part of you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of OT Uncorked. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to Lindsay's private pay MBA course, her website, and ways to connect with her on social media. 
You'll also find links to the books she recommended and more details from the show. If you have a moment, could you leave a review on Apple Podcasts? Reviews help other OT practitioners find OT Uncorked so we can grow our community and reach. Thank you so much for listening to OT Uncorked. It's always fun to sit down with you and uncork OT with a glass of wine. Cheers. Cheers.